If you're joining us for the first time today, we've been going through a series on prayer. We're going to be talking about prayer all throughout the summer. And so today, or last week, we looked at James 5, and we talked a bit about what it means to pray the righteous prayer of faith. We also briefly discussed the wrong way to pray. James says there's a wrong way to pray, and he says it's, it's selfishly to, and to fulfill our own passions. We also answered some questions over the past couple weeks. The first question was, how should we pray? And we looked at the disciples, they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And then last week we looked at the question, why should we pray? Why should we pray? If God is sovereign, if God knows everything, then why should we pray? And we said it's not, it's not we don't pray despite God's sovereignty, we pray because God is sovereign. Because he is sovereign, we pray because he answers prayer. And today we're going to answer another question. And the question today is simply this. What is the chief end of prayer? The Westminster Confession, the Shorter Catechism, has the first question, what is man's chief end? And the answer is man's chief end is to what? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now the obvious problem with that is that we fail at it. <laughs> we're, we're miserable at it. We fail at glory, glorifying God. That should be our highest goal. And we fail at it because we have a glory problem. And our glory problem is that we tend to want the glory for ourselves, not for God. Pastor Paul Tripp talks about how due to our sin, we often uh, view ourselves as the fourth member of the Trinity, as if that were possible. And, and we say, well, God, don't you want to consult us about this? Shouldn't we have a say in this? Should, you know, we don't want to give up our thrones. And so we find our identity in these worthless things. We seek after worthless idols and worthless things because we don't want to give up all of our glory, even though we should. Paul Tripp says this. He says, since the fall, people look horizontally for what they were destined to find vertically. They ask people, places and things to do for them what only identity in the Lord can actually do. And what people fail to understand is that wherever you look for identity, that will exercise rulership over your heart. And in so doing, it will direct the way you live your life. He says, wherever you're looking for identity, whatever you're looking for apart from, from the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what you worship. That's your ruler. That's actually your king. You've replaced yourself with whatever that is. And so we're glory hogs. We're fame monsters. And that's because sin tells us to demand attention. Look at me. It's all about me. I want to seek my own glory above all things. And that's why partly Christianity is so countercultural. Because for the Christian, our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. He alone deserves the glory. He made us for His glory. He made us to glorify and enjoy Himself. And that's the resounding theme we see all throughout Scripture. God is to be glorified. So then what is the chief end of prayer? Well, it's God's glory. That God might hear. And that God might answer. And that we might be helped. And that He might get the glory for answering that prayer. You see, that's why we pray. It's for God's glory. And so as we look at our text today, I want us to see that our prayers, our working in the world, all of that 
is to magnify the glorious name of Jesus Christ. That's the aim of our prayer. That's the aim of our work in all we say and do. So there are three points from the text today. First one is this. Jesus works, so we work as well. Secondly, prayer is a showcase for God's glory. And thirdly, there is glory for those who bear the name. If you would open your Bibles with me or read on the screen, this is our text, John 14, 12 through 14. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus, would you be with us? As we look at your words, would you impress upon us how we might be like you? Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Amen. Something I love about the Hebrew language is if you're uh, studying it, if you're reading it, it has multiple different meanings. That makes it very difficult. If you're studying it, you're trying to master it. But it's really beautiful to read and to look at and parse out. And the Hebrew word for glory is kavod. And it stems from the root word for weight. It can mean glory, honor, respect, distinction, or importance. And so when we talk about God's kavod or his glory, we're talking about a tangible weight. It's something weighty about who God is, about his holiness. There's an example of this in Exodus 24, 17. It says, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. It's a fire up on the mountain. Psalm 3.3 refers to God's heavy shield, right? The glory of God's shield is like this heavy shield and it protects us and it guards us. His glory lifts up our heads. And the response to his glory from our creation, from the creation, is majesty and power and splendor and its weight due His holy name. It's what we call worship. And so we've all come here today to worship this glorious God because it's His. We are giving Him the honor due His holy name. That's why worship should carry with it a reverence, a holy reverence, a weightiness about it. You see, church is not being about being entertained. You're not here to be entertained. You're not here to have all of your specific little preferences met in worship. You see, preferences in worship do matter greatly if you're the one being worshipped. And so God says, here is how you should worship me. Worship me in spirit and in truth. Worship me with reverence. Worship me with a holy trembling. Lord, we're here to worship. We're here to worship. We're here, and it's weighty. We are also to reflect and manifest that glory to the rest of the earth. And we do this by living out lives of worship. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We're the moon. You know, the moon glows so brightly. It ha- it's not a beacon. It has no light of its own. It's, it's a mirror. 
And so we are the moon. We reflect the sun. We just reflect the glory of the sun to the entire earth. And then we, we produce fruit in accordance with the righteousness we possess in Christ. That's what we talked about last week. And so we see this in verse 12. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. So he's working, and we work. We reflect the work of Christ. Now, we always want to be so careful whenever I say that, you know, that word work carries with it so many negative connotations because we want to distinguish between law and gospel. We always want to distinguish law and gospel. And so the work we're talking about here is not a works-based righteousness. Once you are in Christ, meaning you believe and trust in him alone for salvation, you cannot do any, any amount of work that will make God love you any more or any less than he loves you already in his son. Praise be to God. But as we discussed last week, again from James, faith without works is a dead faith. And so the person that is engrafted into Jesus, into Christ, who's planted by his streams of living water and abides in him, will produce fruit. It's all you can do. You can't help it. And that fruit that we call good works, not works that lead to salvation, but works that are a byproduct of our salvation, even those good works are a gift from God. (laughs) It's all grace. It's all grace. It's it's meant for his glory. And so again, Paul, Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we pray and we work, we pray and we work, we pray and we work, we pray and we work. The apostles in the book of Acts, they're committed to the word and to prayer. And and the remarkable thing we see is that through that ragtag team of scallywags, the little, you know, little ragtag team of of fishermen and tax collectors, the word goes forth in power. It's just remarkable through Christ how the gospel spreads like wildfire. And for his glory. Most of you are familiar with the great composer Johann Sebastian Bach. Wonderful musician. He's famous for all of his great contributions to the music of the church. You see, Bach was a man of hard work and worship. In his lifetime, he wrote 1,128 pieces of music. And he headed all of those compositions with the the JJ. JJ which means Jesus Juva, and it means Jesus help me. So he started his compositions with Jesus help me, and he ended them with SDJ, Soli Deo Gloria, meaning glory to God alone. He quote, his quote is saying, all music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. Where this is not remembered, there's no real music, only devilish hubbub. <laughs> you see, Bach had it. Bach had it right. And what he was getting at was Paul's motivation in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of yourself, <laughs> to God. Everything you do. Can you, when you go to lunch today, 
and you're eating and drinking. Our work, our vocations, our fun, our play, our relationships, everything to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. And so again, verse 12 is saying those who are in Christ will do what Christ does. And what Christ does is work for the glory of God. Everything he was do was aimed at bringing glory to the Father. Like a child puts on their little parent's shoes. If you have kids, you know, they put on your shoes and they walk around the house. Look, I'm mommy and daddy. And Paul says, put on Christ. And you can, you know, look at me. I'm wearing his robes. And what a, what a, what a sorry excuse I am for Jesus. But I want to be like him. I want to be like him. I want to produce fruit and abide in him. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And you see the promise, the beauty of the promise here is it's not, he doesn't say just pastors, just elders, just, you know, professional Christians will work. He says, whoever believes in me will do the work that I do. Jesus is just describing the normal Christian life. And that's a great comfort to me as I wear his as I wear the robes he gave me and I fail And I stumble and I fall and I say, Lord, you who began a good work, I'm trusting that you're going to complete it. I'm trusting you're going to finish it because I'm not there. The second thing about the promise from Jesus in verse 12 is that we will somehow do greater works than Jesus did. Now, this doesn't mean Sally should leave here. You know, if your name's Sally, I apologize. You shouldn't leave here and start walking on water. You know, and trying to heal people. (laughs) That's not what he's saying. It's not saying you're going to go do these miraculous things and and you're supposed to try to mimic the works that Jesus did. What is in view here is the rest of chapter 14. And I invite you to read all of chapter 14 today. Because Jesus promises right after this to send the Holy Spirit. And so what Jesus is saying is, it's better for me to go away that the Holy Spirit might come because He's going to come in power. And He's going to come in power for the church. And part of that ministry in the church is prayer. I always like to think about it like this. Jesus goes to heaven. Hebrews says He always lives to intercede for us in heaven. And then He sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is in our hearts, working in us, sanctifying us. And so you have Jesus, who's our lawyer in heaven, our counselor, And then we have the Holy Spirit, who's our lawyer on earth, our counselor on earth. And then we have the judge of all the earth, who's our father. And so when Satan comes and he says, oh, Heath, you screwed up again. I say, would you like to talk to my lawyer? I have 24-7 legal, divine legal representation. Would you like to talk to him? Because he says not guilty. Not guilty in Christ. And so the greater works we do here are works done only through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Christ, all to the glory of God. That's how in the book of Acts, Peter uh, preaches this sermon, this powerful sermon in the beginning of Acts. He preaches it and it says, and and 3,000 or 4,000, thousands of believers were added to the number. (laughs) And you go, well, that's never happened before. I mean, a mass conversion because the Spirit has moved. That's arguably a greater work. And in these works done by us, they bear witness about Jesus 
to the rest of the world. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The pastor John Piper, commenting on this passage, he says this, My suggestion is that what's new and greater is that never before in the history of the world had anyone ever been forgiven by faith in the already crucified, already risen, already reigning, already indwelling Christ. All salvation up till this point had been by anticipation, by promise of the coming Redeemer. But now, now that Jesus had gone to the Father, now that he had been crucified, buried, raised, exalted, and sent in the person of the Holy Spirit, the greatest purchase, the great purchase of redemption by substitution was finished once and for all. You see, it's because Jesus went to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit is now with us. He says, now you're going to work and your work's going to pay off. It's actually going to work. When you work for my glory. Which leads to the second point. Prayer is a showcase for God's glory. In verse 13, Jesus takes that work, the works that we're going to do, and he links it with prayer. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so he's telling his disciples and us, don't worry, take heart. I'm going to give you another comforter. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be with you till the very end of the age. And I give you the power of my name. The power of the crucified and risen Christ will be with you on your glorious gospel mission. Take heart. I've overcome the world. And don't you see it's not my name. You don't pray, you know, in in your name. It's Jesus's name. It's his fame, his prestige, his honor, his glory for his name's sake that our prayers are answered at all. And so as we think about prayer, every request we make, every prayer has to go through this filter. When you pray, when you close your eyes, filter it through God's glory. Filter it through the matchless name of Christ. God, may your glory be shown May your glory be known. May it be magnified in everything that I am about to say. That's our framework. That's the framework for all of our prayers. Pastor David Mathis said this. He said, when your soul hungers, when your tank feels empty, when you're running on fumes, when you open your Bible in the morning and ask for God's help, a great go-to request is simply this. Father, show me Your glory. He says that's a prayer request that God delights in answering. He loves to answer that. And he answers it all throughout Scripture. In fact, God, show me your glory. That's the request that all of history hangs upon being answered. (laughs) That God's glory might be shown, that the king might return. Why did God make the world? For his glory. Why did he make us? For his glory. Why did God send his son to die for us? For his glory. Why does God answer prayer? For his glory. And so we pray, God, show us your glory. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. It's interesting. That's what Moses asked for in the book of Exodus. You remember that? Moses was talking with God and he said, God, I want to see your glory. 
And God's response was, okay. Exodus 33, 19, I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so God says, I will gladly answer your prayer request and I'm going to put my goodness on full display for you to see. And so Moses is there and he hides him in the rock and he hides him in the cleft and he says, I'm just going to show you my back. Oh, you could not handle my glory on full display. You can see my back. And so he passes before him in Exodus 34 and he says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Oh, if you could picture it. Glorious. Do you, want to, do you want to ask God for that? God, show me your glory. God will answer. He'll do it. And even though even Moses only saw his back, Moses comes down from the mountain and the people say, we can't even look at your face. It's too beautiful. It's too glorious. You're shining like the sun. Moses, cover up your face because you're reflecting the glory of God and we're terrified of the weight of of it. Again, go read John 14 because here's the interesting thing. Right before our passage, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. Lord, would you show us the glory? Same request Moses had. But listen to what Jesus says in 14, 8 through 10. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you now say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus says, Philip, you're currently looking at the glory of God in my face. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Oh, Philip, sweet Philip, don't you understand? First Presbyterian Church, do you understand? The Christian sitting in the pew today who knows Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior has seen more of God's glory than Moses saw on the mountain. If you know Christ, you've seen the glory of God. And so my prayer, God, show us your glory. Show us your glory in the face of Christ more and more and more and more and more. I want more of Jesus. I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. Show me more. I said it two weeks ago and I'll say it again. I'm convinced that if I want to teach you to pray, all I have to do is preach the gospel. Because the more you see Jesus Christ, the more you will be conformed to his image and you'll look like him, you'll work like him, you'll be compelled by him, you'll do what he does because you can't help it. It will be impossible for you to encounter him and not come away with your face shining. They stoned Stephen and he looked up to heaven and he was shining like an angel and he saw heaven opened up and he saw the glory of God. 
Are you starting to see how God's glory might change the way you pray? Do you need some sort of help today? Psalm 79.9, help us, O God, for our salvation, for the glory of your name. That's a glory-focused prayer. Psalm 25.11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for its great glory. 143.11, for your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life, glory. Daniel 9.19, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, glory. For the glory of your name and so that your name might be known and worshipped and praised. I'm asking, Lord, would you hear my prayer for your name's sake? And now this becomes my singular desire and my passion in prayer. I love my wife and I want her to be taken care of and I, and I want her to feel appreciated. But I desperately want her to see the glory of God. I want my Children to be educated and clothed and fed, but I want them to see the glory of Jesus above all that. Lord, would you set my wife's eyes upon you? Would you set my children's passion and desire alone for your glory? You see, if they're doing that, if they're doing that, the world has nothing to offer you. If your eyes are fixed on Christ, you'll, what does the world have? Paltry, waste, worthless, get away. I have Christ. All the glory of this world is a, is, can't even hold a candle to his brilliance. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. It's my prayer that you be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is filled with this language. And when you start to see it, every time he talks about prayer, he talks about God's glory and his name, the name of Christ, his namesake. It's just amazing when you read Paul, how glory saturated and how kingdom focused he is when he prays. Father, show First Presbyterian Church your glory. Showcase your glory to our neighbors. Jesus, answer our prayers through your holy name. You've promised it. For your name's sake, would it be done? You see, we need the Holy Spirit to remove these, these cataracts from our eyes. We, we cannot see the glory. We have the glory problem. And so we say, Lord, remove it. Let us see the glory of Christ. Final, final point. There is now glory for those who bear the holy name of Jesus. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus says. One of the greatest theologians of our, our day and age was the, the great R.C. Sproul. And he was so great on God's glory. He loved to talk about the holiness of God and God's glory. And I was just listening to a sermon recently and he was talking about how Adam and Eve were made to, to, to reflect God's glory. And they were made on the sixth day as the, the crowning act of creation. But he says, if you know Hebrew numerology, you actually know that six is the number of imperfection, with 666 being the number of complete imperfection. Thus, creation finds its ultimate fulfillment in the seventh day, the number of perfection. And that's the day when God rests and he declares this day holy. He declares the Sabbath day holy. And so Sproul says, All of creation is aimed for the seventh day. 
We're all made for worship. We're all made to bear the image of God. We're made to reflect. We're made to rest. We're made to rest and then work and steward the rest of the week, God's creation. But the problem is the image is tainted. The image of God, the Imago Dei, is tainted and marred by sin. And so our desire is now for our own glory. And we worship our own idols. And we put off rest. Athanasius, who is a church father, he writes this. He says, you know what happens when a portrait that has been painted on a panel becomes obliterated through external stains. The artist does not throw away the painting, but the subject of the portrait has to come back and sit for it again. And then the likeness is redrawn on the same canvas. Even so was it with the all-holy Son of God. He, the image of the Father, came and dwelt in our midst in order that he might renew mankind made after himself. You see, this is a reverse Dorian Gray. Our painting in Christ gets better and better and better and better because we're in him. And so our painting starts to look more and more and more like the second Adam rather than the first Adam. The old is gone, the new is come. And the remarkable thing is not only do we bear the image of God, we bear the name. We've been adopted into the name. And so Jesus says, ask, drop my name, use my name, glorify my name. Come into the throne room and say, I'm with him. Pray in my name. Tell others about my name. Proclaim the name. Bring glory to the name of Christ. Paul has all this in mind. All this in mind as he's carried along through the work of the Holy Spirit. And he's writing Romans 8, this glorious chapter in the book of Romans. And I just want to read you, starting in verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Amazing. And then he goes on and he talks about adoption. We've been adopted into the name. We've been given the family name. And you guessed it, prayer. And he comes to the magnificent part in Romans 8.28, which we all love. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And we stop there, don't we? But if we continue, listen who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. In Paul's golden chain of salvation, of redemption history, salvation starts in eternity past, and it ends... An eternity future. God predestined you and one day he will glorify your body. Man was made in his image. We are made to do the works of God, to take care of his creation. And we will be one day raised imperishable. So go to him. Run to Christ. Run to Christ and live. If you want to see God's glory, look at the sun. If you don't know Jesus today, run to him. Run to him. 
2 Corinthians 3.18, by beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. I'm going to end with an illustration. This is just a wonderful illustration I heard many, many years ago from a pastor named Jay Miller. And he had taken his family to Disneyland over in California. And if you've ever been to Disney World or Disneyland, you know how miserable it can be by the end of the day. And he's telling the story how it's hot and it rains at one point and they've spent thousands of dollars. They've spent more money than they ever wanted to at Disneyland. And they've waited now in line at the end of the day for the enchanted tales of Belle. And they send you into this little waiting room. You know, before you actually get to the attraction, you're sent to this little waiting room. And there's a guy who, you know, is dressed up as Maurice or, you know, just one of the actors. And they go, please come in. Thank you so much. You know, and they're very excited to be there. And Jay Miller says, they look at me and they say, do you want to dress up as a scary tree? And he says, no, I don't want to dress up as a scary tree. I'm a grumpy dad right now. I'll be a grumpy dad. And he looks at the sun. Do you want to dress up as a prince? Yes, I want to dress up as a prince. So they dress up the sun, you know, and everybody's dressing up. And he's sitting there going, how, please, can we just go in? And then all of a sudden they move you to the next room. And, and, and then the room opens up. And you're taken from Maurice's little shack to the, to, the, to the ballroom. And he goes, now, okay. All right. Now, now something's happening. You know, and he's taken aback by the, by the glory of it. And here comes Belle. And you know what she looks like, don't you? She's got the yellow dress on. And she's beautiful. And here she comes and he goes, I'm a scary tree. You know, and she goes, you know, oh, and she goes, ah, oh, I scared Belle. And he's in this scene now, you know, and it's just wonderful. And, and she comes up and she's playing with all the people who are dressed up and she's just wonderful. And there's a little girl there. And he says this little girl was in a wheelchair and she had a haircut like mine. He says, Jay was bald. And he said, whenever you're that little and you have a haircut like mine, something's wrong. And the little girl is wheeled up to Belle. And she says, you are my favorite princess. And the actress bends down and looks the girl straight in her face. And she says, oh, my dear. You're the most beautiful princess of us all. And you see, that's what being in Christ looks like. Jesus takes his sinful little church. We're so weak. We're so frail. We're dying of sin. We've been broken by it. And he says, beautiful. My bride, I will make you beautiful. Not because of us, not because of any merit in us, not because of anything we done. We were hopeless. We are sick with sin. And he looks at us and he says, I love you. Oh, I love you. And because I've declared you beautiful, you're beautiful. And because I've declared you clean through my blood, you're clean. I've taken the portrait and I've replaced it with my own. See, there's endless hope for the grumpy dads of this world, isn't there? <laughs> for the grumpy Christians who encounter Christ, who know him, see his glory, see his splendor. That's amazing grace. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do you want to see his glory? I, I, I want to see his glory. 
I want to look at the face of Christ. I look through a glass darkly. Oh, I long for the day when I'm going to see him face to face. And he's going to look at you. And he's going to say, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Pray big prayers in his name. Use my name. That's what he says. Come, rest in me. John Newton, I close with a hymn. John Newton, wonderful hymn writer. Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. He says, come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray. Therefore will not say thee nay. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. Let's pray.